In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of my favorite sections in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia is in the silver chair when Jill arrives in an astonishing new world and after wandering around for a bit is really, really thirsty. Lewis writes this, But although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open, and she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill, and if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I... could I... Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. We're living in a cultural moment that insists that Jesus act more like Barney the Purple Dinosaur than Aslan the Lion who devours. So it is not surprising, though it is still quite dismaying, that modern preachers and commentators arrive at our gospel lesson for the day and find themselves turning red in the face as they make excuses for Jesus' embarrassing microaggression toward the Canaanite woman. Those who are more committed to historic Christian dogmas, like Jesus' sinlessness, dance about trying to make this about Jesus learning something in his humanity, growing in this encounter to push past the cultural biases that are part of the human experience. Those who are untethered from Christian dogma grab the baton and run off the field and out of the arena as they declare with conviction that Jesus is xenophobic, misogynistic, yet another example of straight white male privilege. Indeed, if we allow ourselves to be hemmed in by this sort of anachronistic thinking, we'll find ourselves pursing our lips, thinking, yeah, we should probably report Jesus to HR so we can get into a seminar on microaggressions. I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear me say, I believe this would be a mistake. I'm going to move away from this story for just a second because I want to use it to make a couple of points that will help us frame not just this story, but scripture more generally before we come back to understand what's happening in this interaction. First, as I've told you many times before, Christian scripture is deeply weird. And much like being unaware of how weird your own family is until you get to college and have conflict with your roommates, 
who also grew up in weird families. It's extra easy for those of us who grew up in Christian traditions that emphasize the personal reading of Scripture to be unaware of just how weird this collection of texts is. There's this line of thinking that has been morphed and mangled since the Reformation of the Western Church. It began as a very good and necessary thing. Scripture should be in the vernacular. It should be read in the language of the people so that they can encounter God's word in their native tongue. This morphed into the idea that Scripture is readily understandable, which then morphed into the idea that Christianity is mostly about me and my Bible, which from there morphed into the idea that Scripture mostly just means whatever it means to me in the moment. But what I want to make absolutely clear, as axiomatic about Scripture, is that Scripture is primarily the liturgical text of the Eucharistic community that is the Church. The Church is headed by the bishop, who is in the line of the apostles, who maintains the faith once delivered in the apostolic witness to Christ. And Scripture is the diamond of that witness that refracts the light of God's revelation into a spectrum of color that illuminates the hearers of the word throughout the liturgy. By way of example, if you've been a part of our liturgical life for any length of time, you've already heard the words of our gospel lesson. You've prayed them, in fact, as each week we speak the prayer of humble access. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. So, first point. Scripture is primarily the liturgical text of the Eucharistic community that is the Church. The Eucharistic liturgy is a nuclear reactor of symbolic ritual. It's not didactic and exclusively intellectual. Scripture, like the liturgy, is apocalyptic. It reveals and unveils, but it does so in a strange, symbolic, slow way. Point number two is that when Scripture bumps up against our cultural funny bone, we can't just lock up and force Scripture to bend to our cultural assumptions. When the fundamentalists told me alcohol was evil, but Scripture told me Jesus drank it and made it, I had to allow my cultural assumptions to be reformed, rather than recast Jesus in my own image. Similarly, when the progressives tell me that Jesus here is ignorant and xenophobic, but Scripture tells me that Jesus is the sinless Son of God, who was in the beginning God and with God, it's the same thing. It is precisely when Scripture feels totally out of touch that we need to press in and do the difficult work of getting our ears cleaned out by the Spirit. Okay, so what's happening in this story? First off, Jesus has left Israel. He went away from the Jewish countryside and entered the Gentile land of Tyre and Sidon. The Jewish people had the covenants, the temple, the sacrificial system, the messianic hope. They were the people who had received the promise of God that he would one day act in their midst in a decisive way in his anointed one, his Messiah. And yet, as Matthew's gospel account makes clear, they largely failed to perceive the Messiah when he arrived in their midst. So for this brief interlude, Jesus leaves Israel and moves out into the Gentile world. So when Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, our first question should be, well, then what are you doing here? I mean, if Jesus' rescue mission is only for Israel, what is he doing in not Israel? In comedy, there's a three-part structure called the setup, the setup, and the joke. Jesus is a masterful comedian and an incredible magician. Setup one is he leaves Israel. Setup two is he makes explicit the assumption that all Israel had, that the Messiah was only there to gather up the house of Israel. The joke, the punchline, is the moment when the comedian subverts the commonly held assumption and turns it on its head. If we'd been reading Matthew's gospel from cover to cover, 
we know that Jesus has already healed a Gentile servant. When we read John's Gospel, we see Jesus has an interaction with a Samaritan woman, and he knows everything about her. This is where Jesus acts sort of like a magician and picks a volunteer from the crowd. He's working out the three-act structure of the pledge, the turn, and the prestige. Our Isaiah lesson makes clear that from the beginning, God's mission has been to bring all, not just one ethnicity, but foreigners to his holy mountain, to the place of his presence where we are met with mercy and given true life. If we had kept reading in our Isaiah lesson, we'd be more keen to Jesus' magician-like misdirection here, because Isaiah goes on to refer to Israel's religious leaders as dogs who sleep all day and don't bark. Are you starting to see the punchline? Jesus has just left Israel after another encounter with her sleepy religious leaders who fail to sniff out the Messiah they've been waiting for. And he moves out into the land of foreigners, where a puppy who is awake yaps and yaps and yaps because she smells the Messiah. Oh, son of David, she cries out. Jesus hears her barking, but he's trying to show us something, so he remains quiet. The dull-witted disciples come begging. This howling is nuts. Please take care of this. Matthew tells us that Jesus said, but we don't know who he's talking to. Matthew doesn't tell us. It's almost as if he's just talking out loud to give that second setup line. Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But now we're leaning forward in our seats. We know a laugh is coming. The woman is undeterred. She plants herself right in front of him like a little puppy who knows its owner has a treat. Lord, help me. And again, Matthew tells us that Jesus said, but we don't know who he's speaking to. Matthew doesn't tell us. Jesus said it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And this is the turn. This is the moment of misdirection, but don't get distracted because Jesus has just thrown a slow pitch right over home plate, and this woman demolishes that ball with such ferocity. It makes Jose Canseco, even with steroids, look like a wimp. Jesus cannot conceal his glee. He sets up the joke so that the Canaanite woman can deliver the punchline. And then, one last inside joke. Jesus, surrounded by his disciples, whom he has been referring to as the little faith for weeks now, cries out in ecstatic joy, and Matthew is very specific. Jesus said to her, O woman, great is your faith. And what is unveiled for us is that we are the dogs. The little house puppies is the word that's used. And like this woman, we too can be illumined by the Spirit to have faith that we are at the Messiah's table, and even the crumbs that fall will be tasty morsels of life beyond anything our puppy brains could believe. What is unveiled for us is Jesus Christ, the God-man who has come among us that he might enter into the demonic prison house of our death and destroy it, because his enemies flee before him as wax melts before fire. What is unveiled for us is that Jesus has such power and love that our souls, like this woman's daughter, though harassed and oppressed by all manner of woundedness and evil, can be healed by Christ the Lord. All that we must do is cry out in faith, Lord, help me. Amen.